Good morning, church. Back to Genesis chapter 18. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 18. We looked at the beginning and end of this chapter last week. Now we turn to the middle. We have, I hope, established that this chapter is about justice, which is helpful because as our culture is increasingly fixed and focused on a failure of justice, it rightly then calls out for justice. And so in the moment in which we find ourselves, we're seeking to think according to God's word. We're seeking to step back and think rather than react, right? God's word is the standard by which we must judge everything. Sorry, Facebook. I forgot we have people at home. Uh, Welcome you guys too. Uh, Sorry, I forgot about that. It's so good to see people in person. We love you guys too. I'll remember now. Uh, And as we saw last week, uh, we, since God is our creator and lawgiver, since he's perfectly holy, he then also is perfectly just. God is justice itself. We must then, as God's people, measure our standard of justice against him. And as he reveals himself to us through his word, our understanding of justice must align with his perfect word. And so that's the, the necessary foundation that we started off with last week. In the first part of the story, we saw that God is able to do anything. He is perfect in power. And then we saw that he is just in everything. He is perfect in justice. So God is powerful and God is just. We'll briefly define, again, what that means in a moment, what justice is. But now, after laying that foundation, we turn toward man. We turn toward us. Okay? God is just. What does it then mean for us to be just. What does it mean for God's people, as we will see in verse 19, to do righteousness and justice? It's a command in this text and others, do justice, which also, if you know your Bible, cannot help but make you think of the famous and maybe famously misunderstood Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That seems pretty clear. Here's what's required. Do justice. Our culture is currently screaming, do justice. Are the two saying the same thing? Well, let's let's see. Back to Abraham, as we seek to understand biblical justice, or what, since we love qualifiers, I'm going to call covenant justice. We last left Abraham with the Lord. God himself has appeared to Abraham. He has spoken to Abraham. When you see God and you hear God, you are seeing the Son, who is the image of God, right? That's what you see. You see an image, and he is the word of God. You hear words, right? So when you see God or hear God, you are seeing the Son. The pre-incarnate Son of God, Christ, has come to Abraham for two main purposes. To reaffirm his covenant promise, I'm going to give you a son, a seed, but then, and here's what we need to sort out this week and next week. How are these related? Because then God launches into a conversation on justice as we get ready to tackle one of the most explosive and culturally offensive texts in the whole Bible next week as we turn to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have to sort out what does covenant have to do with justice and what does justice have to do with the total annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so these are deep and difficult waters that we are wading into. We must do so humbly, but we also must do so unashamedly. We do not and we will not apologize for God's word. We do not and we cannot be embarrassed about what the God of perfect power and justice does and then records for us because it is important and good for us to know and thus then important and good for us to affirm. And so if we can rightly understand this week, I think and hope it will better prepare us to understand next week. Because remember, these texts, 18 and 19, go together. They are one story teaching us some important truths about God and some important truths about justice. So we're going to focus this morning basically entirely on verse 19, which is fun and timely because uh, today is Father's Day. And this is one of the preacher's go-to father and family texts. Basically, everyone teaches from this verse on the responsibility of fathers toward their family. It's not a terrible secondary application, but it's not the point of the text. Fathers. We have a couple fathers in here. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Uh, Sam and I are the only ones with the young kids in here, I guess. The rest of you older guys are out of the early stage. But Father's Day... All of you, it is your responsibility to teach your children, to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, do your job, obey your heavenly father, love your children, and love them by teaching them to keep the way of the Lord. But it's not what this text is about. Um, What is this text about? It is about a perfectly just God saving his pathetically unjust people through the promise of his perfectly just son, To make his people progressively more just. A perfectly just God saves his pathetically unjust people through the promise of his perfectly just son to make his people progressively more just. Let's unpack that. This passage is about justice. Do you know what that actually is? We love catchwords. Can we define them? Do we really understand them? Can we define them according to scripture? Can you discern the difference between what the world means by justice? And what the word means by justice. Do you know what it means to do justice? Are you doing justice? Let's start to answer some of those questions this morning. Uh, Covenant justice. What is it? Four points today. First, we're going to look at revelation. We're going to see God come to Abraham specifically uh, to reveal to Abraham what he is doing. God tells his people what he is doing. Second, we're going to see God's grace. God loves and chooses his people for covenant relationship. Third, and we'll we'll focus here, obedience. How do we respond to that grace? We're going to see that God's people keep covenant by doing righteousness and justice. That's what we need to sort out and define. And then fourth and finally, promise. Where we're going to see that God blesses his people with himself through his son. So let's let's read. Uh, We read the whole chapter last week. Um, For the sake of time today, I'm only going to read verses 16 through 21. God has come to speak. He has come to reveal. He's already reaffirmed the promise of a son. Well, let's see what he says next. Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to pick up in verse 16, and I'll stop in verse 21. Uh, Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 
For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. If you would, bow with me and let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you are the God of revelation, that you speak to us, your people. That's a very gracious and kind thing for you to do. So I pray that you would help us to hear and heed your word this morning. I pray that your word would do its work on our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would increasingly conform us to your will and to your word. Father, I pray that you would help me in the preaching of your word. Father, this is a weighty task and a great privilege and responsibility that I never want to take lightly. So, Father, I ask for your help. I ask for me to speak only where your word speaks. So, Father, please help the preaching of your word. And I pray also that you would help the hearing and the receiving of your word. I pray that you would be glorified, and I pray that we would be edified. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one, revelation. God tells his people what he is doing. I think this is a very, very important point for us to start with. It sounds basic, but I think it's a very important point for the current cultural circumstances in which we find ourselves. These last three months have just thrown everyone for a loop. Uh, No one was expecting all this. No one could predict all of this. And so we find ourselves and everyone scrambling and reacting, seeking to understand, seeking to sort out what's going on. But God has already told us what is going on because God always tells his people what he is doing. And whatever is going on is ultimately what he is doing. Look at verse 16. We've seen that Abraham lives by the oaks of Mamre. That's where God has appeared to him. And now the Lord, God the Son, and two angels set out from there, and they head toward Sodom. And we see that Abraham goes with them. Now, we don't know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were, which shouldn't be that surprising, considering what happens to them in the next chapter. Our best guess is that Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can see kind of the Israel on your map, you have the Sea of Galilee at the top, you have the Jordan River running down along the east side, and you have the Dead Sea there at the bottom. It's kind of roughly Israel. We think Sodom and Gomorrah was somewhere to kind of the south and east of the Dead Sea. Uh, Some people think it's under the Dead Sea, We have no idea. We don't know exactly where it was. The point is that Abraham's home would have been on the entire other side of the Dead Sea and up into the north and to the west. So this would have been a long walk, and there would have been plenty of time to talk. And God talks. This is what our God does. This is fundamentally what characterizes our God. When you see the comparison in the prophets between the one true God and all the false gods, here's The difference. Our God speaks. I'm thinking a lot on John 1-1 right now, trying to get ready for the fall. And John, consider the two parallel openings. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? And God said. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is the nature of our God to speak, to reveal. And that's exactly what he does in verse 17. Look at verse 17. The Lord said, said, Shall I hide 
from Abraham what I am about to do. I stop there. The question is rhetorical. The answer is no, as God goes on to reveal to Abraham precisely what he is going to do. God graciously reveals to his people what he is doing. And that graciously is important. He doesn't have to do that. He chooses to do that. He wants to do that. He wants his people to know. And that is a great kindness. And I want to encourage you, church, here and at home, that in this great time of confusion and chaos, that this is not just how God operates toward Abraham here in this story, but Abraham, as the father of the faith, as the father of us all, is an example to us of how God operates toward all of his people. And the next point, we're going to see that God loves his people. Remember, the whole point of covenant, we had a visitor in the first service, he says, hey, what's covenant? Uh, good, excellent. The whole point of covenant is relationship. Right? God only relates through covenant. God is establishing how he is going to restore relationship in light of our relationship-destroying sin. So this whole thing is about relationship. And communication is fundamental to any relationship. So fathers communicate with your children. Husbands communicate with your wives. Happy Father's Day. So it is a Father's Day sermon. God, though, communicates with his people. God wants his people to know him. And he wants them to know both who he is and what he is doing. And so he here specifically tells Abraham what he is doing. Well, the question then is, does he specifically tell us what he is doing? Absolutely, he does. Where? Well, here. I hope you're not disappointed, but here in his word. It's why we call this special revelation. It teaches us about who God is and about his ways in his world. This tells us what God is doing in all things. Christian, you must learn to treasure and trust the providence of God. I've talked about it a lot recently, and I do not have time for it here. Uh, but providence is simply the biblical truth that God decrees and directs everything that happens. And Christians that have gone before us in far more difficult and deadly periods of time have found great confidence and rest and preached and proclaimed God's providence specifically in those difficult times. God directs everything. He orders it. He ordains it. Everything that happens, happens according to his will. We forget that quickly. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. See all those words there, declaring, um, counseling, uh, purposing, speaking. Uh, it's all God, the nature that he speaks and he reveals. But because he is God and he is sovereign, his speaking and revealing is also his acting and his doing. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, guys, that includes all these things. Um, all the, from our perspective, confusion and crazy, all the COVID and chaos. Uh, I just left home. We're now, there's 22 people in my family, not my just the six of us, but my parents' family. There's 22 of us. It seems that now six of us are positive for, for COVID. Um, we were on our way to go see my sister, and the day before she said, oh, wait, don't come, um, because now five, four have tested positive and two are sick. 
Um, and so it seems like six are, right? What about all this craziness and all the bad things and all the circumstances and all, we had all these great vacation plans and everything keeps changing. What about all of that? Everything according to the counsel of his will. So first, we have to trust and treasure providence. And we have to know that it is a purposeful providence, a good providence for those who are his. Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, these things, all the crazy, all the chaos. Church, God has told you what he is doing. He has promised that he is working all things together for your good. And also, passive-aggressive application alert. Um, This first point is revelation. Uh, Do you know where God has most clearly told you what he is doing? The book of Revelation. The book that most think conceals, God says reveals. The name of the book is Revelation. The book that most think is confusing and confounding is supposed to be clarifying and comforting if we understand it rightly. Not as many of us were taught it, as a book about all the crazy stuff that is going to happen at the end uh, before the rapture. No. Listen, some of the book is about the end. It's progressing towards the end, but it's not only about the end. The book of Revelation is about the whole thing, the whole period between Christ's ascension and then Christ's return. God has specifically told us in that book what he is going to be doing in that period, which is the period that we are in right now. Now, he has given us the general patterns and principles that are going to characterize our age. And so we don't read the book of Revelation and put on a sandwich board and then go out and scream that the end is near, but we read it and we rest in the knowledge that God has told us what he is doing. And he has told us very clearly in that book that there is going to be much suffering and much difficulty in the world. Why? Well, because of sin. But, church, take heart. Because he has overcome the world. Henry summarized wonderfully and gave us two main themes of the book on Thursday. The triumph of Christ over all his enemies and the protection and redemption of his people. Or judgment and salvation. There will be much difficulty because there's much sin and so there will be much judgment. And how does that not explain what we are seeing right now? The context of the introduction of the concept of justice in the whole Bible is God's judgment against the terrible sin of Sodom. The context of much of the book of Revelation is God's judgment against the terrible sin of the world. We're we're seeing that right now. So read the book of Revelation, understand that God is using it to tell you what he is doing, and then come to Bible study. Uh, Passive-aggressive application finished. But listen, the Bible is food. It is God's word. I mean, do you eat? Are you eating? Uh, brothers and sisters. It is our spiritual food. And I don't know, I eat like five times a day, like little snacks and little things um, here and there, right? Because I can't survive without food. Christian, you can't survive without God's word because it tells you about who God is and what he is doing. And then it communicates him to you. So read it. Come to Bible study. Uh, Christian, first point, take heart. God has told you what he is doing. In all things, God is glorifying himself He is saving his people. He is sanctifying his people. He generally does that through hard things. He's working all things for the good of his people. And he is executing justice through the judgment of sin and evil. That's what he's always doing. 
And since everything that happens, happens according to his will, then that is what he is always doing. And so, church, he has told you what he's doing. So so trust him. Revelation. God graciously tells his people what he is doing. We need to read what he's doing and then interpret everything through the lens of what he has revealed to us. Point number two, grace. God then loves and chooses his people for covenant relationship. Why does God choose to tell Abraham what he is going to do? Look at verse 18 and then the beginning of 19. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. Stop there. God determined to reveal to Abraham what he is about to do to Sodom, specifically because Abraham is going to become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How how the whole world, how are all the nations going to be blessed through this one guy? Hold that thought. Final point. We'll come back to that. But for now, the question is, how is this Abraham, this former pagan worshiper of the moon, this sunless man, how is he going to become a great nation, which would presumably require a son and the blessing of the one true God? Verse 18, for I have chosen him. Grace. That's how God chooses Abraham. If you're looking at the King James, you'll see that it says, for I know him. Or the new King James gets the grammar a little better, for I have known. You'll see also at the bottom of the ESV, footnote, I think it's seven, you'll see that's a possible translation there in the ESV. Why is it known in one and chosen in the other? Well, it's because of the nature of God's knowing. The Hebrew word here is yada, and it is a wonderfully rich and multifaceted word. I almost did a whole sermon just on this word, but I I spared you. Uh, But I'm briefly drawing your attention to it now on purpose in preparation for next week. For it is this word's appearance in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that has become uh, central to the only very recent attempt to wildly reinterpret the text and the sin of Sodom. For there we will see in 19 verse 5 that the sin of Sodom is summarized in the men of Sodom's desire to know Lot's guests. It's the same word used here in 18 18. And again, we know what that word means. We've seen it many times in Genesis already. We know what it means in chapter 4, verse 1, when Adam knows his, his wife, Eve, and she conceives and bears a son. It's the same word. It's an important word, and it's a word which goes beyond mere intellectual knowledge. So log that away for next week. It's going to be important. And so back to 18, when the Hebrew of verse 19 tells us that God yadahs Abraham, it means much more than he has some sort of intellectual knowledge about or of Abraham. It is a very personal word. It is an intimate word. It refers to, using a phrase I like that I picked up from Steve, it refers to an essential knowing. For God to know Abraham in this way is for God to choose Abraham. This is God's sovereign electing grace. God loves his people. And since all people have sinned and fallen short of his glory, since none are righteous and thus none are fit or qualified for relationship with him, you must be righteous to be in relationship with the righteous God. Uh, That means um, for, for God to love his people and what does that mean? That word we throw, there's another word we throw out a lot. What does it really mean for God 
to love us, what is the greatest and highest good? God is. Relationship with God is. The God who is the author and creator of life, the God who is the source and giver of all that is good. Good, then, the only true good is to know this God and be in relationship with him. And we have to keep that in mind in the midst of all of this justice talk. And so since to love is to seek the good of the loved, and since God is the ultimate good for God to love his people who are sinners and are thus separated from him, God must also then choose his people to be redeemed and reconciled to him. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God loves his people and he chooses them. For what? Again, for the ultimate good, for relationship with him. Covenant equals relationship. That's how God relates to his people through covenant. And he initiates and enters into that covenant with Abraham and with all of us through this grace. And so church, you must learn to glory in the grace of God. You must discipline yourself to daily, hourly, constantly meditate on the grace of God and live in light of the grace of God. I think all of us to some degree have been increasingly fixed upon and meditating on news or our world or the culture, the circumstances. We get up first thing, what happened? What happened? And we fill our minds with these things. We're meditating on these things. Are we meditating on the grace of God? Our understanding of justice would be transformed were we truly transformed by the grace of God. Our interactions with one another would be transformed were we truly transformed by the grace of God. Our interactions with the world would be transformed were we truly transformed by the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we are quick to forget God's grace. Uh, We are quick to forget that for the Christian, everything is grace. On your absolute worst of days, God was being abundantly gracious to you. Don't forget his grace. Don't forget his grace in the midst of COVID. Don't forget his grace in the midst of cultural chaos. None of these things, no circumstances can change the grace of God toward his people. He has been and he will continue to be gracious to us, his people, always. He has loved us and chosen us and promised that everything he is doing, which again is everything, he is doing all of those things for our ultimate good. That should greatly color how we look at our world and our circumstances. As the people of God, we must read everything through the lens of the grace of God. God loves us and he chooses us for a covenant relationship. Which brings us to point number three. By the grace of God, we are brought into covenant with God. Covenant is relationship. Relationship requires two parties. What is our part? Do we have any covenant obligations? Of course, all relationships have obligations. There is great responsibility inherent to relationships. Point number three, obedience. God's people keep covenant by doing righteousness and justice. Back to the text. We stopped after the first phrase, of 19. Uh, Look at verse 19. Why has God known and chosen Abraham? For what purpose? To what end? Good question. He tells us that, purpose statement, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Stop there. 
Let's, let's see how we do here. Here's, here's the word. Uh, let's, let's be careful with this word. Let's define this word according to the word, which means we need context. We cannot rip this word out of context and define it to mean whatever we would like it to mean. And we cannot rip it out of context and define it to mean whatever the world wants it to mean. So, context. What is the context of this whole story? Surprise. It's covenant. And one of the contested but important points that I have been desperate to try and make, and I don't think I've nailed it yet, is that there are conditions to the covenant. And we have to read verse 19 and read justice in light of those covenant conditions. And the text itself signals this for us. Look at it. The language is intentional. The language is covenantal. We've already seen chosen. That's relational language. That's covenantal language. Uh, at the end, we're going to see promise in a moment, right? There's always the conditions, then there's the curses, and then there's the rewards, the promises. That, too, is covenantal language. So beginning covenantal, end covenantal, look in between those two. Abraham's job is to command his offspring to keep the way of the Lord. And that, too, is specifically covenantal language. Look back on the previous page at chapter 17, verse 10. Look at chapter 17, verse 10. God says, this is my covenant. Again, I'm, I'm not just making up all the covenant stuff. It's there. It's in the text. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Same word. And how would Abraham keep the covenant? What does that mean? Well, keep reading. Verse 11. You shall be circumcised. Again, what? This is so strange. And so we looked weeks ago at the symbolism of circumcision. The physical act of circumcision is not the point. It is a sign that points to something else. Look up at 17, verse 1. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Notice the purpose. Notice another that. That I may make my covenant between me and you. See, that's what circumcision represents. It is a sign of the condition of the covenant. God says, walk before me and be blameless. Then he says, keep my covenant. And then he says, this is the covenant that you shall keep be circumcised. Circumcision is a sign of walking before the Lord and being blameless. Circumcision is a sign of covenant obedience. And so, in 1819, when God says that Abraham is to command his children to keep the way of the Lord, same word, covenantal language, by doing righteousness and justice, he's saying the exact same thing as he was in 17 with different language. Doing righteousness and justice cannot be read or interpreted outside of the context of the covenant. Doing righteousness and justice here, then, simply means covenant obedience. It is what it means to walk before the Lord and be blameless. It simply means to obey the law of the Lord. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.6. So you shall keep same covenantal word, the commandments, the law of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So there's keep covenantal language, there's the walking again, and then they're doing so by specifically obeying his law. All right, so don't forget revelation. God reveals himself. He speaks. He is just. He reveals himself in large part through his perfect and just law. Therefore, we do justice by keeping his perfect and just law. There is no justice apart from obedience to God's good 
law. That is the command of the covenant. That is the covenant obligation. Do righteousness and justice. That's a specific meaning within the text. But again, if you're reading the King James, you'll notice another difference in translation. Where we have in the ESV, do righteousness and justice. In the ESV, you'll see in the King James it says, do justice and judgment. So righteousness and justice, then justice and judgment. But we met the second word last week, mishpat, often translated justice, often judgment. The first word is actually the main word, sedek, which is righteousness, and the two go together. They're treated together, and they're sometimes used interchangeably. But maybe to simplify, we could say that the sedek, the righteousness, remember just the rightness of God, righteousness as attribute, works itself out in the justice or judgment of God as action. And because God is perfectly righteous, he always acts perfectly justly. Who he is, righteous, demonstrates itself in what he does, justice. So the way of the Lord then is justice. It is that which is right, that which is morally right. What defines what is morally right? Well, that is that which then is in accord with God's law. And so God commands Abraham here to teach his children, which includes all his children, Father Abraham has many sons and I am one of them, his spiritual children, to do justice. Do justice. Micah 6, 8. Let's go there. Turn there if you'd like. Page 780. Micah 6, 8. Let's continue to sort this out from Micah 6, 8. This is kind of the, the passage that's always used. Page 780. Uh, John Newton, and you know, Everything he says is right. Um, I love John Newton. Uh, John Newton says, read his letters. He says that there is hardly any one passage in Scripture more generally misunderstood, and which, I'm quoting him, and which ignorant and careless men are more prone to rest to their own destruction than Micah 6, 8. Why? Why does he say that? Well, listen to the verse again. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? That's important. That sounds like obligations. That sounds like covenant responsibilities required. What are they? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So what Newton goes on to say is this verse is so misunderstood is because it's so generally ripped out of context and then dissolved down basically to mere moralism and then attached to whatever the issue of the day is. What does God require of you, everybody? I'll do justice, love mercy. You done that? Check. All right, you're good. No. This verse is often and quickly divorced from its context, and when it's divorced from its context, it then gets divorced from the gospel. What does this infamous verse really mean? This is good. I love this. Church, again, don't just know verses. Know your Bible. Know the whole story. Know the context. It's all one story, and it's all wonderfully connected by the one author. It interprets itself. God's not just throwing out random ideas here. Uh, some justice, maybe some mercy, and then, you know, walk this way. That, that, that sounds pretty good. No, this is all very purposeful. And, of course, it's very covenantal. If you're a nerd like me and you want to see it, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is why we read Deuteronomy 10 earlier. Page 155. Keep a finger in Micah 6, 8 if you would like. And then turn to 155 to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so this is not original uh, with me. Um, but I think this is wonderful. Micah 6, 8 is Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. 
Micah 6.8 is Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Remember, we've just been in this chapter a few weeks ago. Look down at verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Physical circumcision points to heart or spiritual circumcision, which points to what? Verses 12 and 13. So look at those and let's compare them with Micah 6, 8. Uh, what is the context of the whole book of Deuteronomy? What is it building towards? Chapter 29, you know the answer by now. Covenant renewal. The book is all about the covenant. So look at 10 verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, right? So there's the same language, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That is Micah 6.8 in reverse. Look at it. I guess I'm still sorting some of this out, but look at this. this is, I think this is wonderful. Right, the beginning of the verse in Deuteronomy says, fear the Lord, Walk in all his ways. The end of Micah says, walk humbly with your God. Right, so those two are, are paralleled, walking uh, with God, which includes fearing the Lord and which will lead to humility. Same thing. Look at the middle of Deuteronomy. It says, love him. In the middle of Micah says, love. We always hear it. I was raised with it, love, mercy. And I was working in North Carolina all week, often without internet. I thought that's what the ESV, how they translated the verse. I didn't look it up until last night, I, actually. I was working from memory. Um, but the ESV, uh, I thought, went with mercy following the King James. Um, but it's kindness, it says. Um, and I, that's a little bit better of a translation, because I don't love the translation mercy. I think that's wrong. Kindness is closer. But here's one of the main reasons we misinterpret this verse. Because the word often translated mercy or kindness is the Hebrew word, and I cannot pronounce it um, because I can't do the cool guttural things, but it's the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, is so much more than mercy because hesed is something specific. Hesed is specifically God's covenant love. It is his covenant kindness. It is his covenant faithfulness. Hesed is a covenant Word. Michael will use it twice in the next chapter in verses 18 and 20. Where we say that God delights in steadfast love. That's his said. Then it says he shows his steadfast love to Abraham. Same word. That's what we are being told to love in Micah. We are being told to love God's covenant, steadfast love. So Deuteronomy in the middle says love him. Micah says love his steadfast covenant love, which makes a lot more sense in the context of Micah because the whole book is a sort of covenant lawsuit that God is bringing against his people Israel for breaking that covenant. And in using has said, God is calling them back to that covenant. Right? So that's the middle. And that leaves the last pair. The end of Deuteronomy says, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which would then have to correspond with the beginning of Micah 6.8. Do justice. Because as I'm trying to argue, that I think that Genesis 18 in context must argue, that is what it means to do justice. In the context of Scripture, and in the context of the covenant, justice simply means to do God's word. It means to obey God's law. That's what Micah 6.8 means obey the law of the Lord, love the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, and be faithful to the covenant faithful Lord, and then walk humbly 
with that Lord. And that's, that's a bit different than how the verse is often understood. God clearly commands Abraham and all his people after him to do justice. But it is also clear that God does not necessarily mean the same thing by justice that our world means. To do justice is first and foremost, biblically, to live in absolute conformity to God's law. The whole thing. The first and second table of the law. And the first is foundational to the second. The first, you shall have no other gods. No idols or images. No using God's name in vain. Honoring and keeping the Sabbath. Which means that you ultimately cannot be or do justice if you are not obeying those foundational things. And so just from that, we have to understand how wildly different the world's cry for justice is. Because it has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with God's law. Yes, church, you must do justice. Are you obeying God's good and clear law? Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You cannot do justice without doing that. But there is the second table of the law, and that is what most are talking about right now. We don't want to minimize that. But we want to emphasize that the second table without first table is not and cannot be true justice. Second table is our responsibility toward others. Honor father and mother. Authority. Uh, do not murder. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Or, in summary, uh, first table of the law, first great commandment, love God. Second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what does it mean in Scripture, in context here, to do justice? It means, it means this. It means the Ten Commandments. They tell you, do justice. How? Keep the law. Don't like all the law language? Well, ultimately, we have to get over it because God loves all the law language. But good news, Romans 13.10, as Mike prayed, love is the fulfilling of the law. Guys, the law is all about love. It is Love. What is the law? It is the righteous expression of God's righteous character. Thus, it is right and good. And that which is right and good is loving. The law tells us how to love. The law, God's law, tells us how to do justice. And so when we read do justice in verse 19, we have to read it in context as obey God's law and keep his covenant. And brothers and sisters, we have to start here. We have to get this right because no one else can or will get this right. Justice is that which is only in accordance with God's law. And so anything that does not accord with God's law is not and cannot be justice, but is actually injustice. Keep in mind, this is all coming in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what we're going to see next week. Much that the world calls just, God calls unjust. Much that our culture specifically celebrates as good, God condemns as evil. And so we have to be very, very careful. I know I'm not answering all your questions. You want me to jump in and get all the things and unpack it all and answer all the stuff. I'm punting again to next week. I don't know. If, I can't decide if I'm being cowardly or wise. Um, but I want us to be wise. I want us to make sure we get the main thing. I do want us to stand for justice. We must do that. It's commanded here. I do want us to call out injustice when we see it, as we have tragically seen with George Floyd. We must do that. 
But I want us to be very, very careful who we yoke ourselves with. I want us to be discerning about many of the other things that are being attached to the calls in the name of justice, many of the things that we as Christians can have nothing to do with. But we must have everything to do with biblical justice. We must stand for that and preach that and proclaim that. And we must be, then be very discerning and careful about everything else that's going on. All I'm asking you to do is, is, is encouraging you and cautioning you to be wise. I'm laying this foundation. I know it's insufficient, but I'm laying this foundation to say we must read everything through the lens of God's word. Justice must be determined by what God's word says and nothing else. And if we could just lay that foundation and stick with that, we're going to be in a good spot from which we can then work and discern and read the good and stand with what is good, but then be very careful about some of the other things that are going on um, with that which is good. Covenant justice is obedience and conformity to God's revealed will. It's that simple. It's, it's his law. Loving God and loving neighbor and doing it the way that God says, not the world says. This is how God's people respond to God's grace. The just God makes us just. He does justice. We do justice. Again, all I'm saying is not social justice as the world often defines it. Which, if you think about, justice, by definition, has to be social. Right? It's about our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with others. So that's, that is, by definition, social. So we don't need the adjective. And it's not social media justice. I'll say this in duck. Um, you, you don't do justice by posting about justice. Right? That's not actually doing justice. Um, I just wish, I'm on Facebook, so this is ironic. I just wish there wasn't Facebook. I wish it didn't exist. I wish I could, as your pastor, command you to not be on Facebook. We would all be better for it. Um, but uh, it's not actually just posting about justice. It's doing justice. And we have to resist the temptation to think that the only way to do justice is the way that the world does justice which is through political systems. We've just learned on Monday uh, that this doesn't work. <laughs> we just thought we're going to do all of these things. Uh, we're going to get all these people in power, and then we're going to get good and just uh, judgments. Monday confirmed that maybe that doesn't actually work. Maybe our hope actually isn't in the political systems, right or left or whatever you are, at all. Um, there have to be other ways of doing justice. Because we need good people in our political systems. We need them to fix our broken political system. Please, God, fix that system. But that's not going to be most of us, and that's not going to save us, nor is it going to solve the real problem. So doing justice has to mean something more than just that. It has to be something that all of us can do, and that all of us, as we see, are called here to do. It's a command. Christian, do justice. How? Love God, obey his law, and then obey his law to love your neighbor well. It's really that simple. That's what it means to keep the covenant, the just God, graciously initiates with us his unjust people. But in so doing, he's also graciously making us more like him. He's making us more just. And it's all wrapped up in and connected to the covenant. That's covenant justice. It is obedience to and conformity to God's will and God's law. Love God, love neighbor, he tells you how. Final point, if any of you are still listening. I'll be brief, actually. We've seen revelation, we've seen grace, we've seen obedience, now promise. Here's the most important thing. 
And we keep stopping in the middle of 19. There's so much. This verse is a wonderful uh, verse. We've seen God know and choose Abraham. We've seen why, that he may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now let's keep going. Here's another very important two words. Again, so that. Another purpose statement. God is so kind to reveal so clearly what he is doing. And don't forget ever point number one. God tells us what he is doing. Well, here it is in verse 19. Is wonderful, and it's wonderfully constructed. It's good writing, too. God has done this thing, that Abraham would do this thing, so that God would do this thing. What thing? In the verse 19. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Promise. What's the ultimate end game of all of this? What's the real point of this text? Why all of this covenant business? And what's the real point of justice? Point number four is the point. God blesses his people with himself through his son. There is no ultimate blessing without getting God. He is the blessing. And that's what he is doing. That's ultimately always what God is doing. And remember, providence. God decrees and directs all things. Therefore, God decrees and directs all things ultimately to this end. That God would be glorified in the salvation of his people through the sending of his son and, next week, that he would be glorified in the just judgment of those who are not his people through the sending of his son. You see, the promise is the seed. And the promise is somehow directly connected to what's going to happen next week. We'll get there. Uh, But the promise is the son. And the son is ultimately Christ. Jesus is what God has promised to Abraham. Jesus is what this whole thing is about. So don't miss this. I think this is wonderful. God has loved and chosen Abraham. For what purpose? That he would command all those who come after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do they do that? By doing righteousness and justice, by obeying the Lord, obeying the law. Why is it important that Abraham do this and they obey? That God may bring what he has promised Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the just one, and the only righteous and just one. You see, what God is doing here is he's preparing a people through whom he was going to bring his son. Everything's about the son. God prepared that people by giving them his good law, a good law which their evil hearts could never perfectly keep. A good law, which is the covenant of works. Listen, you have to obey God perfectly to live. You have to be righteous to be in relationship with him. Obey me and live. Nobody did it. We all disobeyed. We all died in Adam. None is righteous. But there's a remnant. There's a people. This is actually maybe the introduction of the remnant motif in Scripture. Don't have time. Um, But there's a people. Why? Why is this people? Why is God commanding them? That they would continue to pass down that law and to teach that law and to preserve that law, which is the reflection of him, which is the reflection of justice, which is the reflection of his standard for being in relationship with him. Why this people doing that thing? So that the one promised could eventually and finally come and then perfectly keep that law in the place of those people. That's the promise. The perfect law-keeping Savior. God is righteous. Or again, let's stick with justice. God is perfectly just. You then have to be perfectly just to be in a relationship with him. You are not perfectly just. I am not perfectly just. And thus we cannot be in relationship with him, unless, unless covenant, 
unless God initiates something that could and would restore the relationship, unless he makes a promise to his people through Abraham that God himself was going to come and keep the conditions of the covenant for us. Jesus, born under the law, that he might keep the law for us and so fulfill the law for us and then pay the death penalty for breaking the law for us. That's what God promised Abraham. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's how Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the nations, because it's through him that the promised seed is going to come. That's why God commands Abraham to command his children to walk in God's ways by doing righteousness and justice, which is keeping and obeying his law. It's all to get to Christ. The just one. The Jesus who is justice, who took the justice that we deserved so that we could be given the blessing and the relationship that he deserved. That's what God is doing here. And listen, that's what God is doing always through all things. A perfectly just God saves his pathetically unjust people through the promise of his perfectly just son to make his people progressively more just. So church, he has shown you, he reveals what is good and what the Lord requires. Do justice. Love, covenant, love, and walk humbly with your God. And remember that there's not a single person on earth who can do justice until they have been born again by grace through faith. There's not a single person who can love God's covenant love until they have been given God's covenant love. And it is impossible to walk humbly with God until God graciously gives you his spirit and makes you new and makes his home in you. Church, our conception of justice must start It has to start with the Lord. He is justice, and thus he determines what is just. We can only do justice to the degree that we know him, are known by him, and are increasingly being made more like him. He loves us, we love him in response, and then that love overflows towards others and is given expression through the keeping of his good law. That's justice. Is there more to say? Oh, so much more. Of course, you already think I've said too much. I can keep going if you would like. Um, But uh, we, we need to grow in our love for God, each other, and our neighbors. Of course, we need to grow in those areas. And we need wisdom for how to do this well. We need the wisdom to discern what is good in what the world affirms and what is not good um, that the world affirms. We need to love each other very, very well. We can do Justice, right? You don't have to be a politician. Um, you don't have to be, a, uh, I forgot the word, what's the Instagram, an influencer or something or another. Like we could, all of us regularly do justice. And it starts here. It starts with knowing God as he has revealed himself to us through his law, and especially through his law-fulfilling son. And so love that son that spared you from the justice of God. Walk humbly with him. Which means delight in him, set him always before you, seek him always, commune with him, study to know and please him and joyfully live to obey him because his commandments are good. That's what it means to walk with God. And anyone who has experienced this has first experienced his generous and free grace. And therefore, we will be characterized by humility. We all desperately must be characterized uh, by humility. I've been greatly humbled by trying to read everything and understand everything uh, that's going on. And I humbly un- understand that I don't understand 
everything. And so humility must characterize how we interact with one another and how we interact um, with the world. But wisdom must also characterize those things. And we find the wisdom in God's word. Know that you have deserved nothing, and yet in Christ you have received everything. And that then makes us always thankful, always content, always then looking to do for others what God has done for us. But if we do not start with him, we cannot do true justice. He is our standard of everything. And thus he, the Lord, the God, who is perfect justice and perfect righteousness, must then be our standard of righteousness and justice. Let's, let's stop there and close uh, with a word of prayer. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that its depths are impossible to be um, fully, completely mind. I thank you that there is so much truth and wisdom in your word. Father, we all of us lack wisdom. Um, I lack wisdom. Father, you do not lack wisdom. And you tell us to ask, Lord, to give us wisdom. And so I pray that we would ask and that we would humbly then seek that wisdom in your word, Lord, as we seek to understand our world and as we seek to understand how to operate well in your world as your people. Lord, give us wisdom for how to do that well. I pray that you would encourage and comfort our hearts and our minds uh, through your word. Um, Father, I pray that your word now would be uh, what is lodged in our hearts and minds. And I ask that by your spirit, you would do uh, that work in my heart. I pray that I would not just be a preacher of your word, but a hearer and then doer of your word. And I pray that that for, I pray that would be the case for every single one of us as well. Father, conform us more and more uh, to your will and to your word. Father, make us a just people who loves you and who loves your law and who delights in following you in obedience to that law. And Father, I pray that you would make us a more loving people uh, towards one another and towards those who are around us. I pray that you would give us great wisdom for how best uh, to be a light and a lampstand um, in this dark and dying world. And that you would give us wisdom about how best to preach the good news, um, the bad news. Father, that there is no hope but the good news that there is hope only to be found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that he would inform us and influence us and identify us and delight us. I pray that everything that we do would be because of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Father, please help us. We desperately need your help. So we ask now that you would work through your word in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.